welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. I thought this morning we would start with a read-along. You guys know what a read-along is, right? Okay, thank you. One person knows what a read-along is. Uh, a read-along is this. It's where I read a story, and there are parts where you help me out in the story. You're, you're going to know this story. We'll have some pictures up here to help you out. So, so here's the story that I want to start with. Once upon a time, there were three little pigs who lived in a meadow. One day their mother said, you need to go out into the world and make your own way. See, this is a Father's Day sermon. It was their mom that kicked them out, not their dad. Uh, so they waved goodbye and went out into the world. The little pigs decided to build their houses in a meadow near the woods. The big bad wolf lived in the woods nearby. The meadow was big enough for all the three houses and none of the pigs was afraid of the big bad wolf. The first little pig was very lazy. He decided to make his house out of straw from the meadow. Sure enough, the big bad wolf trotted out to watch him build the house. When the house was finished, the big bad wolf knocked on the door and said, little pig, little pig, let me in. But the little pig saw the wolf and replied, not by the hairs on my chinny chin chin. Okay, very good. Now, there's something you guys need to know before we go any farther. There are churches out there that they don't do church the way that we do church. They meet at like 10 o'clock and their services take like five to seven hours. There's preaching and then there's singing and then there's preaching and then there's singing and there's preaching and singing. You know what kind of churches do that? Churches that uh, don't do the read-along when their pastor asks them to. So if you guys want to leave at noon today, let's, let's try this again. You guys did pretty good. Let's try it really good. So the big bad wolf said, little pig, little pig, let me in. But the little pig saw the wolf and replied, not by the hairs on my chinny chin chin. Now I'm not sure if I'm excited you're participating or insulted you don't want to listen to me preach for five hours. I'm not sure which one. All right, keeping going here. So when the first little pig refused, the big bad wolf huffed and he puffed and he blew the house down. The second little pig thought to himself, I will be smarter. I will build my house out of twigs from the edge of the woods. That should be easy and safe. But the big bad wolf came by and said, little pig, little pig, let me in. But the little pig saw the wolf and replied, not by the hairs on my chinny chin chin. So he huffed and he puffed and he blew it down. The first little pig and the second little pig ran to hide at the third little pig's house. This house was made of bricks. Oh, they said, you were the smartest of us all. Let us in, let us in, and we promise to buy you food for a week. The wolf came by and said, little pig, little pigs, let me in. But the little pig saw the wolf and replied, not by the hairs on my chinny chin chin. So the wolf huffed and puffed and he puffed and huffed, but the house did not fall down. You guys did pretty good on that. Pretty good. What's the moral of the story of the three little pigs that we've known since we were little? Wolves can't blow down brick houses. Okay, if you've got a wolf problem, you need a brick house. That's part of it. I think the moral of the story is be careful what you're building with. And that it's important how you build and what you build out of. Now, those first two pigs, the truth of it is, is a story. If you read the extended version of the story, it flat says, those pigs were lazy. And what they decided to do is they decided to build out of ease, out of what was comfortable for them, not out of how they needed to build. Now, you may be asking, what does this have to do with our series called Unify Us, where we're talking about, or where we're following Paul through 1 Corinthians, and he's talking about the, the question of unity. I guess the question that Paul's going to ask today is, what is your church built out of? 
Now, I want to clarify before we go any farther, because when we think of that, a lot of times we think of church as a building or a location. And so you might be, well, Brown, we have a metal building, but that's not the church. Ramsey Heights does not exist because it has a building. Ramsey Heights exists because we are here together. And it would still be a church if we were meeting out in a field or in a cave somewhere. It doesn't matter physically what it's built out of. What Paul's going to be asking is spiritually, what is your church built out of? Were you lazy and did you build it out of the wrong things? Or or was your church built the right way? Did you take the easy way and build your church out of the straw of personal preferences? Did you decide that it would be quick and easy to build your, your church out of the sticks of tradition? Or did you build your church out of the bricks of mission? And as a church, we've got to look here at ourselves and we've got to say, what am I building this church out of? Am I lazy and I'm building out of what is easy for me, what makes me comfortable? Or am I putting in the effort and the time and the structure to build the church the way that God has commanded us? So Paul this morning in helping us understand the right way is going to tell us the consequences of the wrong way. If you've got your Bible, this is chapter 3. We're going to read verses 9 through 11 to start. Paul speaking to the church of Corinth. He says, For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. And let every man take heed how he builds thereon. For other, for other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that here in a second. So Paul begins telling us why we should build a church in the right way by defining what the church is. It is not a building, it is not a location, it is not even a name. A church is a group of believers who are working and growing together. And that definition is important to us when we ask why do we come to church, why are we a church? The definition of a group of believers working and growing together is important. Because if we don't focus on why we're here, we can get sidetracked like we talked about last week. Uh, Last week we talked about the differences in the way you can use four horses. You can use four horses as an execution method for traitors who tried to kill monarchs. Or you can harness four horses to a wagon, having them all pull in the same direction, and you can get a lot of work done. And what God has called us to do is to be a group of believers harnessed together, pulling in the same direction, not a group of believers tearing a church apart by pulling in different directions. So Paul gives us a very detailed description of what a church is. This is our first take-home truth. So a church is a group of believers, A, working in partnership with God. In your Bible there in verse 9, Paul puts it this way. He says, you are laborers together. You may hear me say, you are fellow workers. Those mean the same two things. Uh, There's two parts to being a fellow worker. What Paul is saying here is that as a church, you are in partnership with God. That, that we are working together with God. He is doing work in this world, and we are partnering, partnering with Him to work with Him. But the second part of that is if we are in a partnership with God, we are also in a partnership with God's partners. So those who are working for God's purpose in a church that are God's partners, if we are partners with God, we are also their partners. I said partners too many times, didn't I? It's, it's like this, going history-wise. Have you ever studied the difference between World War I and World War II? World War II is pretty easy to define. There's a bad guy. He's got a little funny mustache, and he's killing people. But World War I doesn't really have that same, that same like, bad guy that you can go with. 
And what you'll do is if you'll, if you'll go study World War I and you'll study the beginning of it, you'll realize that World War I started because of the death of one man, the Archduke of Austria, a guy named Franz Ferdinand. He was assassinated by uh, the Black Hand, a Serbian nationalist group. And so what actually happens is World War I was a war between Serbia and Austria. That's all. Two countries that most of us couldn't find on a map. Two countries that have no standing in world power, but yet we get into World War I because of them. Why is that? Many historians will tell you that the reason we had World War I was not because of the issues, it was because of alliances. See, uh, Serbia was allied with Russia. And so when Serbia went to war, Russia went to war with them. They were partners. But Russia was also allied with France. And France was allied with Belgium, and Belgium was allied with Britain. So before you know it, Great Britain is drawn into a war that has nothing to do with them because they're partners with someone who is partners with, who is some, someone who is partners with, who is partners with somebody who is fighting. And the same way, when we are in partnership with God, we are in partnership with each other because we all share that same partnership. And when you have a partnership, there's always a purpose. If you were to start a business today, if you go start an LLC, they are going to give you a, uh, some paperwork to fill out. And on that paperwork, one of the things that it will say is define the purpose of this business. And you have to come up with a mission statement that we are creating this business, business to profit by buying and selling real estate. Or we are uh, creating this business to profit by um, f uh, making things on a farm or something like that. And if you are partners in creating this particular company, you both agree we are working for this mission. A church has a defined mission for us. A church's defined mission is to make disciples by spreading the gospel and growing believers. That is our mission because that is our partner's mission. So as we come together, Paul's calling us a uh, laborer together or a fellow worker with God. It tells us that we exist for the purpose of this partnership. And this may be one of the biggest cores of disunity in any church is we don't actually understand what a church is. We don't actually know what it means to be a church, to come together. And Paul here lays it out in one word that should change everything about the way that, he, that we view church when he calls us fellow workers, laborers together. There's a word in there that's insulting to me, work. It's not what we think of when we think of church. We don't think of work. We don't think of labor. We think of family. We, we think of worship, but we don't think of work. But what Paul is saying to us, to you and me and to the people at Corinth, is that when you come to church, you are a worker because the church is a place of work. And that's hard for us to understand because in America, we're very, we're, a lot, we're great consumers. Like, think about it. If you go home, how many TV channels do you have? Probably somewhere around two, three, four hundred TV channels. Why do we have so many TV channels? It's because in America, if what's on the TV is not what I want to watch, I will change the channel and find what I want to watch, unless you're married and then you have to watch what your spouse wants to watch. It's the same thing with restaurants. We live in a town of, of roughly, if you take Southside and Batesville together, what, 14, 13, 14,000 people? How many restaurants do we have? It's because if I don't like this restaurant, if the service was bad, if the food was underdone or overdone, I take my money and I take myself and I go to somewhere where I get what I want. And I think that concept of everything serves me has rolled over into the church because the idea of how we look for a church is I look for a church that has the things that I want. Plays the music that I like. I like the pastor. Maybe they've got a kid's ministry that suits me. Like I'm looking for a church that meets my needs. And if I don't like that one, if it ever fails to meet my needs, I'll simply find another. 
See, we've got this problem with how we view church. We develop this sense in America that this church serves me. When in truth, what the Bible teaches is me and my church serve God. And that's what we're here for. And this misunderstanding that, that we may have sometimes may cause us to come to a church just to consume. I just want to take. I just want to be fed. And let me be clear in saying this. I want you to consume. My job as pastor, biblically, this is not something I made up. My job as pastor is to make sure that you are well fed. Now, I said that in a Baptist church, and some of you thought potluck. I mean, well fed from the scripture. That's my job as pastor. Our job as a church is to collectively pour into you to help you grow as a disciple. But if all you do is come here and consume those things and go home without pouring those things back out of you, you're missing the biggest part of the church. And maybe this is a reason why churches fight so much. If I think that the purpose of the church is for me to consume what I want, and suddenly I go to a church and I realize they're not providing what I want, my mindset immediately says, well, the church is not fulfilling their purpose. And at best, you may go look for another church that also will not fill you up. But at worst, what you'll do is you'll butt heads with somebody who has the exact same opinion, but they want to consume something different than you want to consume. They want something different than you do, and therefore, we will have division and fighting and misunderstandings and differences of opinion. So it's time to ask, how do we view a church? Would you rate yourself as a consumer or as a fellow worker when you came here? What, what are we when we come to church? How do I view coming to church? And I'll, I'll give you guys some little hints here to help, help understand where you are. If you are a consumer, you will find yourself never volunteering when volunteers are asked for. You'll never invest in mission opportunities at Ramsey Heights, something like Bible school or like Operation Christmas Child. You'll never support financially, which is where we pool our money together to support God's uh, purpose in the church and both giving to missions and taking care of discipleship here. You'll never, listen, this is an important one, you'll never build relationships with people who will hold you accountable. You'll show up, you'll take what you'll like, and you'll leave. But a fellow worker comes here faithfully serving in ministry, celebrating mission opportunities, investing in relationships, growing others and being grown by others, supporting financially, and cannot wait for the next opportunity to grow. So I have to ask you, which one fits you as a church member? Do you come here and you consume and you go home? Or are you a fellow worker as the Bible teaches us to be? See, it's very important for us to be fellow workers because we're partnering with God. You are here in a partnership with the God who spoke this world into existence. I've never understood that. Like, God, why do you pick me? God, why do you pick us? Why is it us that you give this great mission of? There's nothing more important in the world than the gospel. You know who he gave it to? You. Why, God? seems like it's too big for me and it's too big for us. It's too big for our church. Why, God, did you give us the gospel instead of trusting it to yourself? You, you spoke the world into existence. You have the power to heal. You brought people back from the dead. Jesus brought himself back from the dead, yet he entrusted the gospel and the mission of making disciples to you and me. Why did he do that? It's not because we're that great. It's because he knew that we needed it. Listen to this. The, the next point here, the next point, point here is uh, being a church means we are being grown by God, point B. Now, in your Bibles, if you have a King James, you saw the word in there, husbandry. And I want to explain that word before we go any farther. Because when we hear husbandry, we think 
husband, and we think marriage. So now we're trying to figure out, like, how does this fit in with marriage? That's not what that word means. Husbandry is actually an agricultural term that means growing and cultivating some kind of a crop. If you had a New King James Version, it would say, you are God's field. And so what the Bible is telling us here is that God is growing and planting in us. I want you to look at the chronology here. God first says that we are fellow workers, and then he says, but you are his field that you are growing in. God, God is growing in you, but he says that after workers. He doesn't say God grows you and then you work. He says you are fellow workers and then you grow. And what that does is that, that teaches us something about the gospel here. It teaches us something about what God's doing. Even as we are workers in Christ, even as we come here to work and to be fellow workers, God uses that work in us to grow and to grow us into mature believers. See, he's not growing you when you are, I'm sorry, he's not done growing you when you begin to work. He is growing you through the work. It's part of the process. You working, you being a fellow worker with God is part of the process of your spiritual growth. I can attest to this from my personal life and, and how, how things have worked. God will give you opportunities to grow and then he will give you gifts to work in. And that's my story. Uh, let me just tell you, when I was in high school, this, this is a true story. When I was in high school, I was so shy, I would not order at a drive through I would make my girlfriend lean across the truck and talk to the person at the drive-thru because I was too shy to talk. It's a true story. How, how do you get from there to up here? I don't know. I'm terrified of public speaking. My hands shake every morning. How do you get from there to up here? Well, let me tell you what it was with me. First off, first off, God gave me opportunities to grow where I was. Brother Clarence Lusk walked up to me one Sunday morning after I prayed, God, I can't do anything, but I want to do something. Give me a job. Brother Clarence Lusk walked up to me one Sunday morning and he said, Brian, would you start taking up the offering? Well, I can do that. Anybody can take a plate and walk up and down the pew and take money and slip a little in their pocket. No, I'm kidding. I didn't do that. <laughs> making sure you're listening. Like, I, I can do that. But here's what I learned in that. I, I learned in working in that, I learned commitment because I had a job and I was going to be here. If I wasn't here, I found somebody, I made sure that people knew I wasn't going to be here to take that job. For something so small, I learned commitment. And because I was committed here, other opportunities began to open. One day, the Sunday school teacher's gone, and the backup Sunday school teacher's gone, and the person they would ask in a pinch is gone. So they came to me, it's like, hey, Brian, you want to try to teach Sunday school? And I was like, uh, no, but I'll, I'll do my best. And in that, I learned to study, and I learned to be in front of people. And then VBS, and I learned to teach. And I began to work with the youth. And I learned to disciple. And now I'm up here as a pastor. Listen, I don't know it all. God is still working in me. Because let me tell you, as a pastor, you need love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You need those things. And God is growing those in me. Listen, you working does not mean you have arrived. You working means you are growing. And God has a purpose for you in that. God knows that we need to be put to work. And he grows us when we are put to work. Point C is that we are built and building on the foundation of Jesus. See, God calls us his building, and then Paul goes on to say that we are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, we talked extensively about the foundation of Jesus Christ. We talked about how important it was for us as a church to make sure our foundation had not shifted, that we weren't focusing on other things, that what we are doing is making sure that we keep Jesus the main thing. And on top of this foundation, God says, I'm building something on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He's building... He's building a spiritual structure. 
Here's what happens. If somebody brings the gospel to you and then God grows you, and guess what you do? You take the gospel to somebody else. And then God grows them and then they take the gospel to somebody else. God is making this building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the spiritual structure where we are building something. And I tried to think of a physical picture of what the spiritual structure would look like. And, and this is uh, this picture that I've got coming up up here. This, this is kind of what I came up with. This is the world's largest human pyramid. Now, you can see that the human pyramid is built by people getting down on their hands and knees and people climbing up on top of them. This particular human pyramid is um, nine layers tall. That means nine groups of people on top of each other. 39 feet tall. That means the person standing on the top, their head is nearly 40 feet above the ground. And you think about like how that was built. It didn't just appear. What happened is you had a group of people and they got down on their hands and knees and they sturdied themselves and they strengthened themselves beside other people. And they begin to prepare for what was coming next. And what, and what comes next is some other guy comes and climbs on his back. And then you have a new layer of people. They're strengthening, strengthening and starting themselves together. And here climbs somebody else up on top of them. And you build this structure. I think this is a picture of the church. See, the foundation of the church is Jesus without, without question. And what we've had for, for generations and for thousands of years is a row of believers who plant themselves on the foundation of Jesus Christ and they strengthen and they sturdy themselves and then they start to lift people on their backs, discipling them and teaching them about Christ. And over time, you have a new layer of believers who have then strengthened themselves, who have then sturdied themselves in a layer and then more people climb on top of them. You and I are part of this human pyramid where our job right now is to strengthen ourselves so that we can build a layer of people above us. That is the mission of the church. So, so far, if you look at this whole chapter, Paul gives us this picture with these verses that we are working with God, we are growing in our work, and we are growing others as we work, and then that process repeats. This is a picture of how God wants the church to work. Let's continue to work here, verses, or read here, verses 12 through 15. Uh, now, if any man build upon this foundation, he's talking about building, he's talking about the human pyramid, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try even man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward." If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Here's what Paul's getting at. He says, are you building the right way? Are, are you building the right way in your church? Are you building with the right materials? Think of those three little pigs. One of them was lazy. It seemed easy to make things out of straw that didn't work. And the three little pigs had a huff and puff and blow your house down wolf test. But we, we don't have that. Here's what the Bible tells us. He says, what we build as a church, what we put our focus into, what we put our effort into, will go through a test. It will go through a test of fire. And Paul uses this example of, of what we should be thinking when we're working in church and what we're building and what our foundation is and what our important things is. He said it's like building a building with precious stones, silver, and gold versus building a building with hay, straw, and wood. When the fire comes through, the, found, the, the, the uh, things that are built with hay and with wood and straw, those things are going to be burned up. It's just going to be ashes. It's just going to scatter to the wind and it won't matter anymore. But, but if you spend your time building with precious stones and gold and silver, 
if you spend your time building with those things, those things will survive the fire. And so what he's pointing to, he says, is make sure you put your effort into the right things because some things that you're working for, some things that you think are important, they simply don't matter. And I found it really hard as I was reading that, like, how do we know, how do we know that as we build our church, how do I know if I'm building with gold and silver and precious jewels or hay and sticks? I don't really know what that means. And so I'm not going to disagree with Paul. I mean, obviously that's scripture, you don't disagree. But, but I think this might be an easier way for us to understand. Let, let me put it to you this way. Everything that we are doing as a church should be put through the 10,000 year test. Will what we're doing right now, will what we're doing in a ministry, will it matter in 10,000 years? If it will matter in 10,000 years, yes, we are in a a spiritual pursuit. We're doing something that we're called to do. If it will not matter in 10,000 years, we're doing something based on our carnal desires. So having the biggest building will not matter in 10,000 years, but working to provide a place of discipleship will matter as we make disciples. What you wore this morning will not matter in 10,000 years, but sitting next to a first-time visitor will. Disagreeing on decorations won't matter in 10,000 years, but pouring into somebody as a mentor will. Kool-Aid stains on the floor will not matter in 10,000 years. But the fact that kids came to God's house and learned to love him at VBS, that will matter in 10,000 years. See, some things last forever and other things don't. We've got to invest in the things that last forever. And there are four categories of things that will last forever. If you can't put it in one of these four categories, I would say it's not going to survive the 10,000 year test. This isn't on your notes, but if you're a note taker, you may want to write these down. Things that will matter in 10,000 years, if it falls under the category of loving God, it will matter. If it falls in the category of loving people, it will matter in 10,000 years. If it falls in the category of spreading the gospel, it will matter in 10,000 years. If it falls into the category of discipleship, it will matter in 10,000 years. If you can't take something that's important to you about church and put it in one of those four categories, it doesn't matter. Most of what we disagree with does not fit into those four, uh, into those four categories. 99% of church fights are over a matter of personal preference of the right now, Not what's going to happen in 10,000 years. So here's Paul's main point. Take home truth number two on your outline. Is stop going to war over things that don't matter. Stop going to war over things that don't matter. Stop going to war over whether the songs are new or old. Stop going to war over your preferred Bible versions. Stop going to war over the color of the carpet. Stop going to war whether there's a drum set and a guitar or a piano. Stop going to war over things like, do we call it a potluck or a pot blessing? Had to be here two weeks ago for that one. Stop going to war over things that don't matter. Some of you are sitting here and, and you may be sitting, I can't believe, I can't believe he just said that. Not to go, over, uh, not to, go to war over that one thing. That that's not important. That's really important to me. After all, right is right and wrong is wrong. And if I'm right, anybody who disagrees with me must be wrong. I'm not going to argue with you, but let me just tell you what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, ask if it actually matters. Put it through that 10,000-year test. See, in 10,000 years, I don't expect to be sitting in heaven and Jesus walk up to me and goes, Brian, I want to talk to you. Hey, hey, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that you went to battle over the style of music in your church. Nobody really knows this, but I think drums are the worst thing humans ever invented. And I'm so glad you made sure that we only sing those old hymns. 
God's never going to say that to me. Or the vice versa of that might be true. God's never going to come up to me and say, Brian, I'm so glad that you went to war over those, those new songs. Nobody really knows this about me, but I'm so tired of the old hymns. I wanted some new music, and you provided that for me. Never mind that half the church was alienated. Never mind that the people that built the church didn't feel like they had a home anymore. Never mind that the young people who were the future of the church didn't feel like they were welcomed or supported. I'm glad you went to war over those particular things. In 10,000 years, Jesus isn't going to come knocking on your mansion and say, hey, come with me. Come with me. I want to show you something. He takes you to a corner of heaven and goes, what do you think about that? You like that color? Oh, you don't recognize it. Before you died, your, your church was building a new building. And you stood up in a business meeting and you made half the people mad, but you said this was the only right color for your church. I, w I was so pleased with the way that you handled that. I painted this whole corner of heaven that color just for you. Uh, th that's not a conversation we're going to have. Jesus is never going to walk up to us and say, hey, uh, I'm so glad that person that dressed that way, I'm so glad you went up to him and lined them out and, and told them that they didn't dress like that here and if they couldn't dress better not to come back. I made legs, but I don't like to look at them. <laughs> Jesus is never going to say that to us. Jesus is never going to say those in 10,000 years. But, but here are the conversations that might matter in 10,000 years. In 10,000 years when we're, we're worshiping Jesus and we're at his feet and we're taking our time of the day and just worshiping Jesus and we get up and we're high-fiving and hugging everybody and we're talking about how wonderful Jesus is and we notice somebody looking at us weird and they'll say something like, hey, you, you don't remember me, do you? Well, my family came to your church for about a year when I was in third grade. And um, to be honest with you, I, I don't remember very much about it. But you taught my VBS class. Or you taught my Sunday school. And every time I walked in, you were so excited to see me. And I remember how much you smiled when you saw me. And you would give me a hug. My parents never hugged me. And, and for that reason, for my whole life, I associated a church with a place you could find love. And when I was 45 and my marriage was falling apart and I had health problems and my children weren't speaking to me and I desperately needed love, I went to a church because I remembered that that's where I found love. And what I found out is it wasn't your love that I felt, it was God's love flowing through you. And I came to know Jesus Christ because you gave me a hug for 12 or 14 Sundays when I was in third grade. That's a conversation you might have. That'll matter in 10,000 years. In 10,000 years, somebody may come walking up to you and say, hey, you don't know me, but I grew, up, I grew up in Mexico. And I wanted to go to school so bad, but we didn't have the money for my parents to, to buy school supplies for me or shoes. And so, so I asked a God that I didn't even know existed. I said, hey, if there's a God out there, I really need some shoes and I need some school supplies. And the next day, a guy came into our village with a beat up old truck and a truck bed full of little shoe boxes. And they gave them to every kid. And when I opened mine up, there was a pair of shoes that fit just right and pencils and papers and crayons so I could go to school. And the man who gave me that shoe box, the man who gave me that shoe box said that this was a gift from Jesus. Hey, when I was worshiping Jesus the other day, I said, God, thank you. Thank you for the shoe box. And you just happened to walk by. And Jesus said, just so you know, there's the person who bought those shoes and put them in that shoe box for you. I just wanted to say thank you. In 10,000 years, that'll matter. In 10,000 years, maybe somebody will knock on the door of your mansion and say, hey, I just wanted to meet you. You're a legend in my family. You're a legend in my family. Oh, no, I lived about 100 years after you when I was alive. But, but here's why we know you. 
is one day my great-grandfather came to your church. And he didn't know why he was going, but he felt like he had to go. And he said, I'll go one time, but I'm never going again. I'm going to get this over with. But when you saw my great-grandfather walk in, you come up and you sat beside him and you smiled and you made him feel welcome. And you told him you were so glad he was here. And when he left, he decided, you know what? If they're going to be that nice to me, maybe I can come back. And he came back week after week after week looking for you because you made him feel comfortable. My grandpa got saved. My great-grandpa got saved in that church because you made him feel comfortable. And when he got married, he and my great-grandmother raised my grandparents to follow Christ. And they raised my parents to follow Christ who raised me to follow Christ. A long story short, I just wanted to tell you, I wanted to meet you because of the way that you serve God. Fifteen families of my generation are in heaven today. Fifteen generations of my family are in heaven today. Like those conversations will matter. Those things will be there in 10,000 years. The Bible tells us that we will be rewarded for our work. And, and the Bible doesn't say exactly what that means, but in other places, the Bible promises that we get to wear crowns in heaven. That you're going to be judged by your actions and you will be rewarded with a crown. And I don't know how the crowns work, I'll be honest with you. But what if crowns have jewels? What if, this is just a what if, what if every time Every time you took money you could have used for you and you gave it to that extra missions offering, you get a green, a green jewel in your crown. And so in 10,000 years when you take that crown off and look at it, it's just sparkling with green jewels. What if every time you come to a church by yourself and you work to clean the church or you work to fix something in the church so other people can have a good worship experience here, you get a little red jewel. And some of you are gonna be in heaven one day with a crown full of red jewels. What if every time you shared the gospel, whether they accept it or not, God puts a yellow jewel in your crown? The Bible doesn't say, but listen, there are things that will matter in 10,000 years that, that there are things that will matter in 10,000 years and those are the things that we should be invested in. Paul says, stop going to war over things that don't matter. Invest in things that'll survive the test of fire. Invest in things that will matter in 10,000 years. Let's keep reading. Uh, verses 16 and 17. Know you not that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God... Ooh. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. I'll be honest with you, as you read this, you're tempted to skip over these verses because it just seems kind of not very much fun. But what the Bible teaches us is when we become a believer, when we follow Christ, when we get saved, that the Spirit comes and dwells within us. And the Bible says that our bodies are temples for God. Paul takes that a step farther here. He says, you know what? Because you are all believers and the Holy Spirit dwells in all of you and you are a church together, wherever you meet, there also the Holy Spirit is. You as a church, you are a temple for God, not the building. And he, and he goes on to talk about, hey, as a church, maybe you should be careful not to defile this temple. That word defile everywhere else in the New Testament is translated as corrupt. And I was thinking, what does it mean to defile or corrupt? And I thought, what about a corrupt official? What about a police officer who, who was hired to protect and serve, but he takes payoffs to let crimes go? I think it was Al Capone had something like two-thirds of a major city's police force on his payroll. What about a politician who promises to be elected to serve you and me, but they go in and they start making legislation to influence the stock market. They go in with no money and they come out a multimillionaire. Or a corrupt official like a judge who twists a system that he promises to uphold, twists justice to get a family member out of it. Like, those are some of the worst things I can think of. And as a church, we have a power. We have a power to serve God. We have a power to do what he called us to. We have a power to be on mission and what God's saying is don't take the power you were given to serve and use it for yourself. 
And in the context of what we're talking about here, defiling the temple of God doesn't mean I brought coffee in the sanctuary. Doesn't mean I wore the wrong church clothes to church this morning. Paul's talking about church disunity. Paul's saying, hey, don't, don't start fights. Don't be a disunifier in your church. And there's this warning here. There is a punishment attached. So our next take on truth is God will punish those who cause disunity in his church. The Bible literally uses the word here, destroy. And I, I've thought about it all week. What does that mean? What does it mean God will destroy you? And I don't know. I thought it could mean that he'll destroy you financially. He could take your health. He could kill you. I don't know. But here's what I can tell you. Here's what I think is important. If you will go into the Old Testament and start in Genesis and start looking for instances where God promises to destroy something, what you will find is it is swift, it is thorough, and complete. And as a church member, we may be sitting here and saying, God wouldn't kill me. God loves me. I'm a church member. I'm a Christian. He can't really destroy me. And I won't argue with that, but I would ask you to run that opinion through Acts chapter 5 and go look up a story of two individuals named Ananias and Sapphira in the church. See, the church is holy. It is set apart for a mission. And this mission was so important to God that he took Jesus Christ, he took his son, and he nailed him to a cross. That is how serious God is about the mission of people coming to him. He's not going to let me, he's not going to let you take that away from him by having our focuses in the wrong place. Our God is a God of patience. He is a God of grace. He will put people in your life to guide you. He will convict you, but he will eventually take action if we are taking his church away from his purpose. Very quickly, we're almost done. Stick with me here. Verses 18 through 23. Uh, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he takes the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So what Paul is doing here is he's giving basically a recap of what he said See, here's the recap that I see in this. As I look at church disunity, as I look at church division, I think as humans, we usually tend to say, that's a them problem because they don't agree with me. But what Paul has kept saying to me and you, to all of us, is that church disunity is us problem. It's a problem with, with thinking too much of ourselves, of being spiritually immature, of not understanding what the church is here for. And he wraps up this chapter and he says, listen, don't, don't, don't. Don't deceive yourself. What a silly thing to say, Right? Don't lie to yourself. Who, who lied? Like, I might lie to you. I might deceive you. You might deceive me. But nobody lies to themselves. That's what we think. But here's what the Bible says. In Jeremiah, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful among all things. What that means is your heart will lie to you. Your heart will tell you that your wants are the most important. Your heart will tell you that someone who disagrees with you is not as smart as you. Your heart will tell you that you are right. Push harder and maybe they'll leave the church. Your heart will tell you if they don't like it, tough. What Paul's saying here is don't fall for your own lies. Keep one thing in mind is that God knows and God is in control. Our last take home truth is to seek God's wisdom, you must first reject your own wisdom. And Paul puts it this way. He says, I want you to become a fool. If you think you're smart, be a fool. And, and the reason he says that is to be a fool means that I know I'm silly. It means I know I'm not smart. And when I know I'm not smart, what happens is I'm open to looking for wisdom. 
said, if you want to understand the wisdom of God, you've got to understand that you know nothing. You've got to be humble and admit that you need to seek God. And here's what you'll learn, according to Paul, is most things don't matter near as much as you think they do. Paul says, all things are yours. In context here, he's talking specifically about the fight in Corinth. Who's better? Is it Peter? Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Who's better? Who's more important? And what Paul says is, all of those people were put there for you. You don't have to pick one. One of them is not more important than the other. They were all put there for you. God put them all there for you. You're missing a blessing by picking some of them. And that may be true of disunity in churches today. Maybe old and new music are both good and both from God. Maybe the person who opposes you, their view is from God and yours is from God and God has a purpose in both of them. See, what matters, what matters is not what side of an issue you're on, but who you belong to. And what Paul would have us to think of more than anything is who do we belong to and do I act accordingly? Live if you want to come up here. See, to be a church, to be a church that follows God, we have to keep the focus on Jesus Christ and our foundation. And I just want to ask, as I do every week, before we go any farther, maybe you're sitting here and you've been here several times and you know good and well your foundation in life is not Jesus Christ. You know good and well you need salvation. Today is that day. For the rest of us, I think what God would ask us is like, hey, do you walk around making sure that you seek the wisdom of God or are you puffed up in your own wisdom? I've told you before, I don't know why we're going through this series right now. I'm not aware of church disunity. I don't think anybody's fighting. Maybe they are and I just don't know about it. Here's what I really do believe. I don't believe we have a big bad wolf problem. I believe we've got a roaming lion problem. And I believe that God is fixing to do things through this church. I believe we're gonna see more people saved. I believe that God wants to do something here. And I believe there's a lion out there who's waiting to see if our church is made of straw or, or sticks so that he can knock it down again. We've gotta make sure our church is built out of bricks and built on the mission and on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So this morning, this is our time of response. I have no clue what you might wanna do, but this is open to you. I would love to pray with you. I would love to share with you what it means to have faith in Christ. I would love to pray with you about something in your life, but don't leave here the same as you walked in. Let's stand and worship, please.